What causes executives to delay or avoid divestitures, even when it is evident that these transactions will help their companies and in some cases save them from decline or even extinction? Most fundamentally, divestitures suffer from bad public relations. They tend to be viewed as a last resort to use when something is going wrong, like an acquisition that isn't working out or a business whose performance is deteriorating. Perceived financial constraints can impede divestitures as well. Generations of executives have been advised to milk, not divest, their cash cows. After all, how does one justify eliminating a predictable source of cash, especially a source of cash for which potential buyers might not pay an acceptable price? Ghosts from the past can also deter divestitures. What does it mean to get rid of the legacy business around which a company was built, especially when that company's name reflects those original operations or when that divestiture will cost many longtime employees their jobs? Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of work and faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. Well, great to be joined by Emily Feldman, Wharton Management Professor. Emily, great to talk to you again. How have you been? Hey, Dan. So nice to be here. Great to, great to be with you. Great. And, and so obviously an important book that you have written uh, talking about divestitures, I should say. The title is Divestitures, Creating Value Through Strategy, Structure, and Implementation. Give us a little bit of the backstory on what it was that drove you to want to do a book on this uh, on this segment. Yeah, thanks. So it's a great question, and you know this is a topic that has taken a lot of importance in my in my research uh, over the past you know fifteen years that I've been at Wharton now. So I actually started studying divestitures when I was a graduate student back in uh, in my PhD program, and you know just kind of recognized that these were understudied in the academic realm. Uh, and so this kind of spiraled into just a bigger research agenda that I, you know, continued pursuing throughout grad school and then when I got to Wharton as well. And, you know, as I kept working on it, the more I worked on it, the more that I realized that, you know, among practitioners, among consultants and bankers and, you know, sort of the world at large, right, these were sort of under-recognized uh, as well. And so I decided that, you know, the time had come to try to really produce a, a practitioner-oriented book that could speak to these issues and talk about what some of the misconceptions around these transactions might be, as well as, you know, some of the realities of, of what they do and, and how they work and how they can really help companies uh, in their strategic objectives. So that's really what motivated me to work on this book. So obviously, for a lot of the people that are kind of in the banking sector, this is uh, a very important topic for them. But for the public at large, what is it that in doing this book, you want to try and bring to light, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a very simple but important message, right? So, you know, the world focuses on mergers and acquisitions, right? You read a headline about mergers and acquisitions, it's flashy, it's sexy, right? Synergies, growth, opportunity, right? All these great, happy things that are associated with these these uh, expansionary transactions. And it's quite the opposite when you read about divestitures, if you even do read about these transactions, it's much more, you know, oh, the company is having problems or a business is failing or a merger didn't work out or something went wrong. And so, you know, I think the message of these are not just sort of failures or, or strategies or transactions to do when something has gone wrong, but rather that they provide real strategic opportunities for companies 
um, to focus and realign operations, to reconfigure resources, and to achieve, you know, operational and stock market performance improvements is really the message for for kind of the public at large. And I think that's a very important message given the misconception that I started out with. Right. And so the term divestiture, give us your best case explanation for the public at large as to what a divestiture truly is. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's a really important question, right? So a divestiture, you know, plain and simple is a transaction that a company can use to remove one of its business units, a subsidiary, uh, a division that it might have as, as part of its operations, right? So basically, we're talking about getting rid of something that's part of a company's existing operations. Um, and so there's there's various different ways, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but there's various different ways that companies can uh, accomplish divestitures or do divestitures, right? So you could sell a business, you could spin it off, you could do other types of transactions. Uh, but in broadest terms, right, a divestiture is the removal uh, of one of those business units. And there are a variety of, as you said, different elements, different types out there. But are there ones that seem to be more popular, more attractive than others right now? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, popular, yes. Attractive is a trickier question, but I'll try to answer each of those, right? So by far the most common uh, way that companies will divest is to sell something, right? So I have a business unit that I don't want anymore or that I'm trying to get rid of, so I sell it to another company or I sell it to private equity or something like that, right? So sales actually account for about 95% of all divestiture activities, so far and away the most common. Um, spinoffs are the second most common, right? So in a spinoff, what happens is that a company issues shares in the business unit that it is divesting uh, to its existing shareholder base, right? So if you're a shareholder of the parent company, you automatically will get shares in the spinoff company in the business that's being divested. So it's not the same thing as a sale, but rather what's happening is that the spun-off business becomes its own publicly traded company uh, that's separate and distinct from the parent company that it used to be a part of. So spin-offs account for about 2 to 3% of all, uh, of all divestiture activities. So uh, much less common than, uh, than, than sales, but, but still the second most common. And then there's a whole other range of much, much less common divestiture structures like reverse Morris trusts or joint ventures. Uh, equity carve-outs, right, and the like, that can be used to accomplish different things. And this ties to your comment about kind of attractiveness of these different uh, types of divestiture structures. So what's really interesting, and and I think one of the biggest insights that I got uh, just in the course of researching and writing my book was, you know, actually each of these transaction types can really accomplish very specific financial objectives in terms of generating cash, in terms of managing tax burdens, um, in terms of, uh, you know, getting an acquirer potentially to pay for synergies and so on and so forth. So it's not to say that one is always more attractive or less attractive than another, but rather to say that these transaction types or these structures need to be used depending on what it is that the company is trying to accomplish uh, through that transaction. So if attractiveness may not be the proper word, would it be easier to say that when you're talking about each of these, there are probably pros and cons that go along with with each each uh, each different type. Yes, very much. That's a great way to put it. Speaking specifically, like let's use spinoffs as the example. When you're talking about spinoffs, what are some of the pros and cons that you end up seeing? Yeah, for sure. So the biggest one far and away is that these can be tax-free transactions under certain circumstances, right? So they're a great way actually for companies to 
try to manage the tax burden from uh, from divestitures. And the easiest way to see that is to contrast them to sales, right? So if you sell a business to another company, you're getting cash right, or some kind of consideration, but usually cash. And so that's going to be a taxable transaction. But because in a spinoff, there's no cash that's being generated, you're simply issuing shares in that business unit. No cash is really changing hands. And so these are these can be tax-free transactions depending on whether you've met certain kinds of conditions, right? So that's a huge advantage of a spinoff um, relative to a sale, for example. One of the biggest disadvantages of uh, spinoffs, of course, is the potential for conflicts between the company that's doing the divestiture, the parent company, and the business that's being spun off. The spinoff company... And the reason is that uh, in most cases, the parent company will, will direct the process of going through that spinoff. Uh, and so a lot of times the spinoff company doesn't have uh, much, if any, involvement in terms of how it's being set up, right? So right. whenever things go wrong, or maybe not whenever, but oftentimes when things go wrong after the spinoff, that is used as a basis for saying, oh, well, I didn't have a, I didn't have a say in this, right? So that's where the conflicts really start to come up between these types of companies. So that would be a big disadvantage of spinoffs relative, for example, to a sale where this would not necessarily be the case, right? And so, yeah, you can go through each of these transaction types and sort of explain, like, relative to one another, you know, what are the advantages, what what are the disadvantages? And my book kind of goes through and, and sort of lays out these uh, these considerations. But it's actually really fascinating, um, you know, strategy in and of itself, right, to sort of say, well, we have to think very carefully about you know, what are the objectives that the specific way that we're going to do the divestiture can accomplish and match accordingly. Right. And, and there's that decision process between the potential idea of selling an entity in comparison to maybe spinning it off. And, and again, it's going through that process, the, the corporate structure go, going through that process to understand which might be the best path to take it. Yeah, very much. And I, I really hope that one of the effects of my book is to help to mitigate a little bit of the, the the storytelling that goes on around these transactions, right? So, for example, a lot of times what I'll hear when I'm talking to companies is, oh, I don't want to do a divestiture because if I divest this business, I'm going to have a huge tax bill, right. right? And that might be true if you're selling it, but have you thought about these other modes of divestiture, spinoffs and perhaps others, as a way of maybe not having a huge tax burden, uh, when you're doing this divestiture, right? So I think that there's um, a lot more element of choice maybe than managers realize um, when 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 it comes to undertaking these transactions. So I hope my book starts to correct some of those uh, some of those ideas. When you think about where what a company is at a particular moment and where they would like to go, I think a lot of the discussion ends up around the value of the company, but also the performance of the company as well, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I think that's another really important aspect. So we've been talking about structure so far in terms of how companies can do divestitures. But I think what you're kind of talking about is is sort of the strategy element, which is, yeah. you know, why why would we even think about doing these transactions in the first place? What are they going to help us accomplish? And how might they help us to uh, improve our performance, right? And uh, performance in terms of operating performance or perhaps share price stock market performance. And so, you know, the whole first part of my book actually goes through and, you know, talks about these different strategic objectives that divestitures can help companies achieve uh, and why they might be valuable under these different circumstances. Are there specific examples you've seen where that component of, of focusing on performance or, or that corporate value has played out uh, that, that we've seen in the news? Oh, very much. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're seeing it very, uh, very intensively right now. So, for example, one of the big strategic reasons why companies 
uh, should and often do think about divesting is to uh, improve corporate focus, right? So this is basically the the focus, so if I may, of uh, of chapter two of my book. Um, and so what I talk about there is, okay, so you have uh, a company that has a number of different business units and perhaps you are having difficulty, you know, allocating resources to one of those areas. Perhaps uh, the the number of different businesses that you have is confusing to uh, external constituents like securities analysts or investors. Um, perhaps there's issues of resource allocation and so on and so forth, right? So there's lots of different reasons why focus might be desirable. And so what my research shows, first of all, is that when companies do these focus-improving divestitures, that we do actually end up seeing these performance improvements that we've been talking about. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of this right now, actually. So if you look at GE, it's a great example. Uh, So GE, of course, after, you know, a huge wave of kind of slimming down, uh, basically did the, the, you know, the final final blow there uh, in terms of breaking apart healthcare, aviation, and I believe environmental services is the third business, if I'm not mistaken. So breaking those three apart and allowing each of them to kind of stand on their own two feet and have their own corporate focus. Or Johnson & Johnson is another great example. Or uh, Kellogg's from last summer is a, is a third great example, right? So, you know, cereals has a very different uh, growth trajectory and profit margins than uh, snacks, right? Snacks are better, basically. And plant-based foods are, you know, very uncertain, right, depending on where consumer tastes go. So it's sort of hard to say. Um, and so, you know, how do you keep those businesses in the same portfolio, right? The idea of sort of separating and allowing each of them to be independent is kind of a key motivation for for the for, for those three kinds of transactions. It also seems like we are also seeing more consideration on these potential divestitures because of the regulatory side, and and I think that's an area where a lot of people will will look to focus, especially if there's more and more transparency around the company that they can truly understand what the company is doing and why they're trying to do it. Very much, yeah. And so, you know, regulatory regimes have changed, obviously, very, very significantly, right? So, for example, right now, we're in an era of much more robust antitrust enforcement. Uh, and, of course, antitrust and competition is a is a huge motivation for divestitures. Uh, when companies do M&As or certain M&As, a lot of times they'll be required to divest certain businesses uh, as part of those transactions, right, to try to mitigate anti-competitive or potentially anti-competitive effects that might result uh, from their M&A transactions. So I imagine that we'll see a lot more activity in terms of trying to mandate divestitures from a, from a regulatory perspective along that dimension. Uh, another area is national security. So CFIUS is uh, another reason why companies will often be uh, required to divest certain assets uh, in response to kind of managing national security interests, right? So another area of huge importance right now in the regulatory environment. So so absolutely. And I, I think this point is an important one because it helps to distinguish between, if you will, kind of the pure strategy motivations, like we're, we're doing a divestiture to achieve a particular strategy versus being required to do a divestiture, perhaps as part of something else that's going on, uh, maybe from a regulatory perspective. So I think it's, it's, it's uh, interesting to distinguish between those, uh, those two aspects. But what do companies have to look at when they're considering a divestiture to make sure that the process goes smoothly for them? They don't want to obviously you know, uh, hit a pothole along the way, to use that terminology, uh, and, and cause a significant negative impact to their bottom line? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, you know, implementation with any kind of corporate transaction is tricky, right? So I think this is probably the biggest pitfall that we see with mergers and acquisitions, uh, and and equally so perhaps when it comes to divestitures, right? The, the devil is in the details of of kind of managing implementation. 
So when it comes to divestitures, you know, there's a lot of detail in the book, obviously, about the different things that companies need to pay attention to. But if I had to highlight three, I think I would say the following. The first would be to try to, um, you know, be very clear about managing shared resources and shared liabilities that need to be divided between uh, the divesting company and the divested business, right? So, you know, it's easy, for example, if you have something that's very clearly applicable to the divested business, it just goes with the divested business after the divestiture. But unfortunately, the reality in many companies is that it's not that simple, right? And so a lot of times there are shared resources, there are shared people, there are shared functions like human resources that are hard to kind of disentangle, shared expenses. Um, and so that process of disentangling is is complicated, right? So I would say, you know, don't underestimate uh, the process of disentangling shared resources and shared liabilities and expenses and kind of manage those uh, those carefully when it comes to divestiture implementation. So that's one one pitfall to watch out for. The second would be managing cost structures, right? So on average, when companies divest, right, what you end up seeing is that their sales decline uh, by about 25%, right? So the average divestiture reduces a company's sales um, by, by about a quarter, right? So that's kind of the average size of those transactions. But what's interesting is that, so you would think that the cost structure of those companies should decline after these transactions, but what's really interesting is that they don't. And quite the opposite, the cost structure of the divesting company after these transactions increases by about 20 percent. <laughs> so huh. that is problematic, right? Because basically divestitures need to be used as an opportunity to sort of, you know, cut the extraneous things that are no longer there. Sure. But if companies are increasing their cost structure, that's the wrong direction, right? So uh, the second lesson that I would offer, the second pitfall that I would offer is be sure to manage costs carefully when uh, going through these transactions, because a lot of times uh, you will end up with a bigger cost structure than you need or want after these transactions if you're not careful about it. And then the third thing I would say is um, use divestitures as an opportunity to kind of reconfigure, right? And I think this is often um, underutilized as well, right? So in the sense of saying, look, you know, what do we want to do differently after this after this transaction? What do we not want to invest in? What do we want to invest in that can help grow our business beyond its existing boundaries? And, you know, use that transaction as a catalyst, right, or an opportunity to kind of reposition the organization to go in that different strategic direction, right? It's not just a one-off, like, oh, we're getting rid of something, but right. rather it's something more in terms of saying we can we can reshape, we can do something different after these transactions. So that's the third lesson I would offer. How frequent do we see now, and maybe have we seen in the past, uh, when the potential of a divestiture occurs, that it's more gauged a company is looking at a specific like segment line within a company in comparison to the larger company as a whole? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. So I think that, you know, with divestitures, I'm, I'm talking more about kind of the segments as opposed to kind of the company as a whole. But you're right that companies can, of course, sell the entire entity to another organization. And, and that does happen, right? So I think that, you know, we, we see, um, we tend to see sort of the full scale, uh, full scale types of sales, right, in situations of perhaps distress or, you know, sort of opportunities that need to be taken by by a different owner, right? So private equity is a great example, or, or private equity is, is um, you know, often utilized in these kinds of situations. Um, so, so I think that's an interesting distinction between sort of the more kind of corporate divestitures that the book is focused on versus kind of these full-scale uh, sales of companies. And again, what is it that you would like the reader to to really take away from from reading your book? Yeah, definitely. So I was talking before about that underutilization, right? So I, I quoted those statistics about 
how infrequently divestitures are utilized in comparison to their expansionary counterpart mergers and acquisitions. So here's the, the killer statistic for me, right? If there's one takeaway, this is what it would be. If you look at the performance implications of divestitures versus mergers and acquisitions, we actually see that the divestitures outperform the M&As by two to three times in terms of their shareholder value. And that difference persists for up to 36 months after the completion of these transactions. So that's the pathology, right? We don't do these transactions, even though they actually create more value for companies than the transactions that we are actually focusing on, right? Headline, like, wait, we're doing the wrong thing pretty much when it comes to maximizing shareholder value, improving performance, right? So divestitures need to enter the conversation, right? Divestitures need to be as much a part of that conversation as mergers and acquisitions are, because clearly they are a lever that companies can pull uh, to create outside shareholder returns uh, for their for their companies. Well, Emily, thanks very much for your time. All the best with the book. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you. You got it. Emily Feldman, Wharton Management Professor. Her book, Divestitures, Creating Value Through Strategy, Structure, and Implementation. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.